Ignacio's roommate, Omar, the young guy in the next bed, the one I've been ignoring for the last month, has come back to life. Omar never should have survived his accident. He was run over twice while riding his bike on the freeway. His liver was slashed, his spine, ribs, and a hip were broken. He has something called a diffuse axonal shear injury to his brain, the kind of injury that usually puts people into a vegetative state. Next to Ignacio, Omar looks dead. But now I see the difference. The way Omar looks at me compared to the way Ignacio just stares at me. I'm waiting for Ed Kirkpatrick, the nursing home director. I want to show him what Omar can do. While I wait, I ask Omar questions. I'm afraid he'll slip away if I stop talking. Blink once if you know you're in the hospital. He blinks. Blink if you know you were in an accident. Blink. And because I can't think of anything else? Blink if you're bored. Blink. I'm Joanne Ferry, and this is Chapter 5 of Room 20, a new podcast from the L.A. Times Studios. It's about a man called 66 Garage, who lay in a hospital bed for 15 years, unidentified, and about how my search for his name and the circumstances that put him in a San Diego nursing home changed not just his life, but changed my life too. Ed comes into Room 20, and I tell him, Omar is conscious. Ed holds up three fingers and asks him to blink twice if he sees three fingers. He blinks twice. Ed tells him to squeeze his hand. Nothing. Ed says, blink twice if you're trying to squeeze my hand. There's a blink and then another blink. Ed and I step into the hallway. I can barely contain myself, but Ed doesn't seem excited at all. What does it matter if Omar is conscious, he says. Conscious or unconscious, he'll never be able to walk or tie his shoes or go to the bathroom on his own. He'll never speak, Ed says, because his brain injury has left him mute. And suddenly, I'm angry with Ed. I kind of lose it on him, tell him I don't think he's doing enough, that he's just letting people rot in these beds, like Ignacio has for all these years. I tell him that maybe with help, Omar could move around in a wheelchair someday, find a way to communicate. Ed is a calm man. Maybe it's because he's used to hearing this sort of thing from families at the villa. He tells me there's no money for rehabilitation once someone comes to this unit, the vent farm. When Ed leaves, I go back to Omar's bedside. Blink twice if you want the TV on. The roommate blinks. Should I read to you the next time I come? He blinks again. Before I leave the villa that night, I ask one of the nursing assistants to adjust Omar's head on his pillow so he can see the TV. I notice how the nursing assistant looks at me, like I've finally stepped over the edge. He's used to this sort of magical thinking, I write in my notes. But he humors me. He moves Omar's bed and adjusts the pillow beneath his head. For the first time since Omar arrived in room 20 a month ago, he can see the TV. Good afternoon, this is Dean, 51543 for Spanish. Can you hear me okay? Yes, Dean, uh, can you hear me? I'm in Ed's office. He's about to speak with Ignacio's sister for the first time. Her name is Juliana. Ed's got an interpreter, a man named Dean, on the line. This is the first conversation that I will have had with that family member 
So this is pretty heavy duty. I got it. And Juliana answers the phone. Her voice is faint and slightly shaky. Ed struggles to find the right words. Well, Juliana, uh, congratulations. I, I know that it comes as a, a, a big shock and, and to you that your brother is alive. So we, we are uh, uh, we are delighted here that we now know who this person is, and we are um, so pleased that he does have uh, family. And um, I would like to to ask if you know I I, I am available to you for 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 now and for however long it takes for you to ask questions and, and understand things. Um, and perhaps it'd be better if I sort of stopped and you ask us um, some questions or, or um, of what, what things you would like to, to, know, to know. Yes, you know, I don't even know what to ask because this happened so many years ago. But I never thought we would find him like this. Juliana says she wondered whether or not her brother was alive, but she never imagined that she would find him in a hospital. The conversation lasts more than an hour. It's sometimes painful to listen to. Ed tries to explain Ignacio's medical condition. Today, he is capable of opening his eyes he will follow you if you're in the room and if you speak to him. But he's, he is totally dependent upon um, his permanent tracheostomy and his feeding tube. Um, he, his, his mind is basically that of a two-year-old. Is that, I don't understand. How were you able to tend him for so many years if there's no chance of recuperating him back to normal? Ed doesn't answer that question. How can he? How can he explain a medical system that keeps people alive when they have no chance of recovery? People like Ignacio. Ed asks Juliana if she'll talk to me about her brother, about his life before the accident. She says yes. At the end of the call, Juliana thanks Ed for taking care of Ignacio. Thank you for everything you're doing for him. What you don't hear in the recording is Ed choking back tears. A few weeks later, I go to Ohio to meet Ignacio's sister. Isn't traveling stressful? There's horrible airport traffic, long flights and uncomfortable seats, and airplane food that's just not good. With all of that to deal with, the one thing you shouldn't be worried about is your luggage. That's where Away comes in. Away has created the perfect suitcase with everything you need and nothing you don't. Each suitcase is made with travelers in mind, and they have multiple sizes to choose from, including the carry-on. It's extremely durable and comes in many different minimalist designs that look good in any context. It has a built-in compression pad to help you pack in more without going over the size limit, something I used to struggle with on every trip. And the carry-on even comes with a laundry bag, which I used to always forget to pack. If you'd like to get away, we have a special offer for Room 20 listeners. 
For $20 off your own suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash room20 and use promo code room20 during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash room20 with promo code room20 for $20 off your suitcase. When I was in school, the coolest thing you could have were Tamagotchis hanging from your backpack. You were cool if you had them and you weren't if you didn't. Now it's Bombas socks that bring out all the envy on the schoolyard. And it's not surprising, they're the most comfortable kid socks ever. They're so colorful, literally bursting with color. They come in blue, yellow, green, pink, and more. They even have a colorful bee on them. Plus, they're so comfortable. They're designed with comfort innovations that help make them feel better than any other kid socks ever made. So send your kids back to school with the socks that keep them comfy, colorful, and ready to take on the school year. And while you're at it, why don't you get some for yourself, too? I wear my performance running Bombas socks every time I go for a long run, and they're honestly the most supportive running socks I've ever owned. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit bombas.com room20. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot room20 for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com room20. I'm on my way to the small town in Ohio where Juliana lives. It's dark and cold. Winter, 2016. By now you know I don't speak Spanish, so I've asked my son's high school Spanish teacher, Christian Michelle, to come with me to interpret. He's my son's favorite teacher, the kind of guy who stays in touch with his students, counsels them long after they've graduated. Christian is so moved by Ignacio's story, he wants to meet Juliana too. Christian is driving when we arrive in Juliana's neighborhood. We pass a grocery store and a hair salon. Both have storefront signs in Spanish. And then we're on Juliana Street. Right there, the light's on. There it is. There it is. Ah. A few minutes later, a car pulls up in front of the duplex. Someone drops off Juliana and her three young children. Hola. Hola a todos. Hi, mucho gusto. Juliana is in her 30s, and she's tiny, like her brother. She looks like him, too. They have the same nose, the same eyes. Her living room is bare, except for a TV on a stand, and a giant poster from the animated movie Minions on the wall. We sit in the kitchen at a round table surrounded by four plastic patio chairs. This is difficult. This is already like... No, I didn't expect to find my brother like this. And then Juliana begins to talk about Ignacio's childhood. Both of their parents had been married before, and between them, they had 12 children. Ignacio was the youngest. They called him Nacho. The family lived on a ranch in Oaxaca. In the fields, we'll walk to the village to go to school. Ignacio was an active kid. He liked to horse around with his older brother. Like my kids, they're like two in their play. One get on top of the other, and their play fight like that. All of the kids, except for Ignacio, eventually ended up in the fields, working the land. Ignacio was encouraged to stay in school. Because my parents said he's the youngest, so he will study. And Ignacio said yes. He wanted to study. He didn't want to work like all of us in the fields. Ignacio liked music. He had a good singing voice, Juliana says. And at school, he played basketball and soccer. But when he was 15, everything changed. Their parents were murdered, shot to death, walking home to their ranch from the village. 
The details about what happened are murky. We found out later who killed them, my mom and dad, but we couldn't do anything. The three youngest kids, Juliana, Ignacio, and a brother named Benito, went to live with an older half-sister, and Ignacio had to leave school. We never had protection, like someone older to be with us, and we stayed it like that without anyone. Almost two years later, in January 1999, Ignacio briefly went back to school. But then, after just a few months, he dropped out again. He didn't have money for a school uniform or the cleats he needed to play soccer. And he also had to pay for books. So after that, he said, OK, I'm not going to study anymore. He told Juliana he wanted to go to the U.S. His brother Benito tried to talk him out of it. Benito told him to study and finish school. But others in their town were heading north, and Ignacio wanted to go with them. Juliana says that despite their misgivings, they scraped together the money Ignacio needed to join the group, 2,000 pesos, about 200 U.S. dollars. Days later, Juliana got a call from Ignacio. He said Border Patrol agents had caught him trying to cross and sent him back to Mexico. That's when his fingerprints were put into the iDent system. Juliana shows me a photo of the Mexican consulate sent her. It's Ignacio's detention photo. He looks like a kid, wide-eyed and scared. But on the phone that day, Ignacio told Juliana he wasn't coming home. He'd taken a job picking tomatoes and cutting chilies, earning 500 pesos, about 50 bucks a week. As soon as he saved enough cash, he said he was going to try to cross again. That phone call was the last time Juliana spoke to her brother. When Ignacio made the call, he was in Hermosillo, Mexico, nearly 200 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. I talked with Juliana late into the night. It hurts a lot, but I just ask God what I want is for him to heal, to recuperate, to be with me, he and I. Now it's only the two of us. Of the 12 children in their family, only three are still alive. A half-sister in Oaxaca, Juliana, and Ignacio. Benito, the brother Ignacio was closest to, the one who told him not to go to the U.S., he died a month before the DNA results confirmed Ignacio's identity. I tell Juliana everything I know, that Ignacio was hiding in the back of a truck when it crashed. I tell her the truck was being chased by Border Patrol when it ran a stop sign, that her brother hit the pavement when it flipped. It's a different version of the story than the one she heard from the Mexican consulate. They had told her what they knew from the newspaper clipping, the version of the story in which Ignacio was driving. I show Juliana videos I've taken of Ignacio at the villa. He's smiling in some, reaching for toys. Juliana shares some family photos with me. Ignacio as a little boy with his mother, a photo of Benito, the brother who died. I promise Juliana I will FaceTime with her when I get back to the villa so she can see her brother. She doesn't have a smartphone, but a friend's niece has an iPad, and she offers to help. There's something else I learned from Juliana that catches me off guard. It's about Ignacio's birthday. Juliana says the Mexican consulate believed he was born in April 1980. That's what they said when they first called her, and that's what I believe, too. That would have made Ignacio 19 the day of the crash, just as the accident report said. 
But Juliana says Ignacio was born in 1982, not 1980. Her little brother was just 17 when he was injured. She tells me how the mix-up happened. Juliana says that in her last conversation with Ignacio, after he was caught trying to cross the border the first time, he told her he had lied to the Border Patrol about his age. If the agents had known he was only 17, they would have detained him until they located a parent or a guardian. So he said he gave them a fake birthday. April, 1980. That made him 18, an adult. So they released him back into Mexico. Three months later, in June, Ignacio tried to cross again. That's when he was thrown from the pickup truck. According to Border Patrol records, he had turned 19 by then. It's in this moment, in Juliana's kitchen, I think the worst possible thing. Had Border Patrol agents taken Ignacio's prints at the accident scene and run them through their database? Is that how his age, his Border Patrol age of 19, made it into the accident report and the newspaper article? Did Ignacio's name simply get lost in the system? I would go on to spend a lot of time researching everything I could about the Border Patrol's protocols for fingerprinting in 1999. I never could answer that question. Just why the accident report and the newspaper clipping both said he was 19. I'll never know. I reached out to the National Border Patrol headquarters to tell them what I'd learned about the chase and the crash. I told them I had questions about their pursuit policy and Ignacio's accident, and about why none of the official reports mentioned what witnesses told me, that the Border Patrol was chasing the pickup truck when it crashed. The Border Patrol declined to comment. When I return to San Diego, I go to the villa and FaceTime with Juliana. She's going to see her brother for the first time in 16 years. Hi. Hello. Hi. 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 I'm just outside of his room because they're just um, adjusting. The nursing assistants are changing Ignacio. So I kill time by holding up my phone and giving Juliana a video tour of the villa. I introduce her to some of the people who know him, like Maritza Valle. She cleans room 20. Ay, pues mucho gusto, Juliana. Yo me llamo Maritza y yo voy a su cuarto todos los días y yo le hablo y y bien sorriente. Maritza tells Juliana Ignacio is happy today. He's doing well. She asks Juliana if he was like that as a kid, always smiling. Juliana says yes, whenever he'd play or go to school. A few minutes later, the door to room 20 opens. I walk over to Ignacio's bed and hold my phone above his face. Ignacio! Oh, he's so excited! (laughs) Oh, he totally knows you. (laughs) Ignacio stares at my phone, at Juliana, who's looking back at him. She's sitting on a couch, surrounded by her friends and neighbors. Juliana cups her face in her hands. She cries and smiles and cries some more, and speaks to her brother softly. She tells him she's his sister and she will do her best to come see him. She tells him she misses him. He looks big, she says, and then she reassures him. Things will get better. She says she prays they will be together. Now that Ed knows Ignacio's real birthday, not the Border Patrol birthday, he throws him a party. Ignacio's 34 years old. There's music, balloons, and a chocolate cake from Costco. 
Ignacio has been propped up in a special wheelchair. Christian, the Spanish teacher who traveled to Juliana's house with me, he's here too with his wife. Residents from the other side of the nursing home, the ones who are old but alert, come in wheelchairs. I've never seen anyone who lives at the villa actually walk. Families of people from the life support unit come too, like Steve. Hey Steve, how are you? He's the man married to Rafaela, the woman who was in the motorcycle accident and lives down the hall from room 20. Hola, Nacho. ¿Cómo estás, huh? Feliz cumpleaños. Feliz cumpleaños, amigo. Feliz cumpleaños. I've made copies of the family photos Juliana shared with me. I put them on the tray table attached to Ignacio's wheelchair. Chris, a nursing assistant who's been at the villa as long as Ignacio, takes a look at the photo of Ignacio and his mom when he was 12. This one, the first one, this, uh, she, he first came in here, he looked exactly like this. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wait, which one? No, not that one. Uh, this one, this one. This one. This one. That's him. That's ah. him as a boy. Yeah, that's the one. We cut the cake, but there are no candles. With so many oxygen tanks in the building, candles are considered a fire hazard. All this time, music is playing, and people are wishing Ignacio a happy birthday. But he looks sad. His bottom lip is turned down, and he has tears in his eyes. Ed dips his finger into some chocolate icing and puts some of it on Ignacio's lip. He doesn't react. Nothing. I wonder whether Ignacio has lost his ability to taste from his brain injury, or maybe he's just forgotten what food tastes like. We all gather around his wheelchair to sing Happy Birthday, first in English. And then with Juliana on speakerphone, Christian leads the group in singing it again in Spanish. And like a scene from a movie, Ignacio smiles. Can Ignacio understand more than we think? Did he really smile at me that day almost two years ago? Or was that smile just a reflex? Next week, a neuroscientist answers that question when she comes to the villa to test Ignacio. This show was reported and executive produced by me, your host, Joanne Farian. My senior editor was Susan White. Room 20 was produced by LA Times Studios, Clint Schaff and Camila Victoriano, with production support from Neon Hum Media. Blanca Soto did the voicing for Juliana in this episode. Special thanks to Sam Tari and Andy Trimlett for production and research help during my reporting. To discover more about the story, go to latimes.com slash room 20. 